ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, fun show this week. Joining me will be Ross Gerber, President and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management, who's a registered investment advisor. They manage some $2 billion in client assets. But back at the beginning of July, they partnered with Advisor Shares to launch the Gerber Kawasaki ETF, ticker GK. Uh, this is obviously managed by Ross. The firm is a sub-advisor on this ETF. But... <laughs> I've got to tell you, I'm fascinated by this. I think for a number of reasons, uh, but probably first and foremost, it seems to me that any advisory firm of significant size should at least be kicking the tires on an ETF strategy, right? It, it's a tax-efficient way to invest client assets. It's a way for non-clients to access the firm's investment strategies. I see a number of potential benefits here, and I think it's a trend we'll see grow in the ETF space. But I think another, maybe even more interesting aspect is simply that Ross is prolific on social media. He has something like 165,000 Twitter followers last I checked, gets tons of engagement. And I've been thinking a lot about this concept of ETFs being used as a vehicle to monetize social influence. We saw this with Barstool's Dave Portnoy and the Buzz ETF earlier this year. Roundhill and Matthew Ball just partnered on an ETF, or at least the uh, index behind it. There's been several of these recently, and I just wonder if this will also be a trend we see develop, where more social influencers or name brand knowledge experts get involved in and put their names behind ETFs. Uh, I, I saw somebody on Twitter coin this ETC, so not exchange-traded commodity, exchange-traded clout. I absolutely love that. But in any event, this should be a really interesting conversation with Ross. I'll definitely get his take on all of this. And then we'll, of course, dive into the ETF itself. Now, to start this week, I have the ETF Jedi on the line with me from Massachusetts, Dave Nodig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. We actually owe some people responses on Twitter questions that we didn't get to a few weeks ago, so we'll answer those. And then I have a, a couple other ETF topics for Dave as well. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, thank you for joining me this week. Oh, my gosh. Great, great, great topics. I'm excited to dig in. I am, too. And, you know, before we get to these uh, Twitter questions, I know we briefly touched on this last time you were on. But given that Ross Gerber is joining me this week, I, I want to quickly revisit this topic of social influencers or w whatever you want to call them getting involved with ETFs, because you, you had mentioned being, I, I would say, a little bit skeptical here and not with uh, Ross in particular, but just that some of these social tie-ins are essentially marketing, right? Now, yeah. I, we, we, I would say with Ross in particular, you mentioned how this could certainly make much more sense for somebody like him because 
he's actually operating an RIA and he yeah. manages billions of dollars in assets. Do you want to just expand on this a bit? And I guess, do you agree that, that this could be a trend we see where larger RIAs and particularly those who are out in the media that more of them will look to launch ETFs? Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes a ton of sense for anybody who has uh, a particular, I, th- I think, well-defined ethos, a well-defined investment philosophy, and has shown that they have traction for that, whether that's through an RAA business, whether it's through a media business. Uh, I, I think it makes a ton of sense. But I also think we are rational enough people that we can recognize that there's a difference between Ross Gerber, who, whether you love him or hate him, is very clearly a money manager. The dude is a stock picker of the old school, right? And uh, yeah, he's pretty open and public about that in his creative a little bit of social media following but like there's no question what he is he's an investments guy he picks stock he'll either be great at it or he won't it's really easy to figure out dave portnoy is a totally different thing even portnoy doesn't think he's an investment manager or a good stock picker right not if you ask him uh so i i suspect we will see very different kinds of outcomes right i think buzz was an interesting approach uh you know that's the fun that that follows the 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 index that portnoy is associated with uh it also hasn't gotten a dollar's worth the assets to speak of since the week it launched, right? And I don't think that's particularly surprising either. I don't think that's going to be the case for Gerber Kawasaki. I think they will uh, generate significant assets and they'll probably perform about as people expect them to, uh, which, you know, will be very regime dependent, of course. Uh, and and I think they'll be quite successful. I think there's a well-trod path here for RAAs with good, solid businesses to use the ETF wrapper to expand their footprint. I'm not sure if Ross is planning on having clients of his firm own this ETF as well. I'm assuming he will. I'm going to ask him that later on. But as I I think about potential hurdles to this trend that I mentioned of RIAs perhaps launching their own ETF, do you think it's a challenge that instead of a client seeing, I I don't know, let's say 25 stocks, they see one ETF holding? We've talked about this on the uh, asset allocation ETFs, right? Why advisors are reluctant to hold those because they don't want a client getting a statement that has one ETF that owns all their holdings. But obviously, the ETF is a very tax-efficient wrapper. There's a lot of benefits to, to owning securities in an ETF. I'm just curious, do you think that could be a, a, a roadblock to this potential trend of uh, RIAs getting I, involved? I don't, I, I mean, so I suppose, you know, tax issues, individual positions, that could be a roadblock. I think these, having an ETF that is associated with your core investment philosophy, if you're a, a you know, a big name above the title RIA, just makes a ton of sense. But for the tax reasons you're talking about, it can be very useful. Um, it can be a fantastic way for uh, a firm like that to customize for a client. So in, in other words, they could use their fund as the bulk of their you know traditional equity allocation and then work around that, knowing not only what's going on inside that core position, but actually doing in advance what's going to go on in that core position because they're running that fund. So I think it makes a ton of sense. We saw, we've seen people like Maine Management do this. Cambria, to a large extent, followed a similar path. Like I think this is well-trod territory. All right, let's move on and jump into these Twitter questions. And then, like I said, I do have a couple of questions for you as well. Um, so the first question we have comes from, and, and, and by the way, some of these Twitter handles, uh, we'll see how well I do with them. This one is Shrans459, uh, but, but good, good question, I think. He asks, is there such a thing as too many ETFs? These funds creating niche strategies are basically plays or variations on QQQ. They create buying of stocks, which artificially inflates prices because they suck in so much money, which needs to be deployed. And he's asking for for our thoughts. And and let me just clarify this a little bit here. I, I think what he's asking is that with a proliferation of, say, thematic ETFs, and we've heard this with uh, ARK Invest as well, that if they all target the same stocks, and especially I think within smaller stock universes or, or smaller cap stocks, that flows into these ETFs artificially inflates the underlying stock prices. Now, I, I'm sure this isn't the first time you have fielded this question, but how do you like to answer this? 
Well, so let's split this up into a couple places. So can there be too many ETFs? Does every ETF need to exist? Of course, every ETF doesn't need to exist. Do we actually need, what are we up to, five versions of the S&P 500 straight in the ETF wrapper? Probably not. Probably one would work. Um, however, you know, a lot of these firms have distribution. They have brands. So they're launching funds not because they necessarily think theirs is the best, best version of sliced bread ever made, but because they have clients that will appreciate buying a branded product. They know that that's going to have something to do with it. That is why you end up with a State Street and a BlackRock and a Vanguard version of the S&P 500. It's not because any one of them thinks theirs is so much better than everybody else's. So yeah, of course, there are too many ETFs when you approach it from that perspective. But I think there's also reasons for most of those ETFs to exist. Does that mean that all of these ETFs are right for everybody? Of course not. Um, and what he's observing here, what this Twitter user is observing, which is that, you know, we now have all of the, currently all of these sort of splits of the uh, of the cues, right? Tech focused, thematic focused, innovation focused. Yeah. Are we in a little bit of a bubble of talking about innovation? Sure. I suppose that bubble could go on for a year. It could go on for 20 years. We have no way of knowing. Uh, but that's the moment, right? That's the zeitgeist of the era. And, you know, I suppose if we want to be cynical, we can look back and suggest, OK, yeah, some of those funds aren't going to be around in 10 years. That's how this works. But what about this thought in terms of ETFs impacting the underlying stock prices? Or I guess a better way to say it is the, the tail wagging the dog here. You, you and I heard this a ton with Kathy Wood and ARK Invest that flows into, say, ARKK or ARKG. That was having an outsized impact on some of these smaller cap holdings. How do you view that? I mean, obviously, from my perspective, I've always said investors want exposure to those stocks. So whether they're going yeah. to invest in them individually or go through an ETF, it doesn't matter. That's the demand. But is, is there anything more nefarious here? No, there isn't, right? So look, if Kathy Wood was running this as a mutual fund or an ETF or simply publishing it as a newsletter, it would have effectively the same impact. There's nothing about the ETF version of this that has any outsized impact on one individual stock versus another. If anything, I would say the opposite is true because it's completely transparent and everybody knows exactly what's going on. Uh, the opportunity for there to be weird disconnects actually is much lower because everybody's paying attention to it. Um, I think it's also worth noting that uh, we talk about the ETF market as if it is one thing, and yet at the same time, we're having this conversation about there being too many ETFs slicing and dicing the market in ever thinner ways. Well, guess what? That's how price discovery works, right? When you can have uh, you know, an ARKK sitting alongside an XT sitting alongside XLK, well, people make a decision about which one to be in, and they don't all hold the same stocks, and therefore those flows end up in the stocks of the one they choose. That's price discovery. They may not be individually setting the price for NVIDIA at this tick, but those flows impact regardless of how they get to the market. Okay, I'm going to try to sabotage both of our arguments here with the next Twitter question that I have. It comes from okay. <laughs> Rigel Galan, uh, who asks, what do you think about the ETF ICLN? Is it going to have good performance? So ICLN, that's the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF. And you can speak to performance if you want. But what I thought was interesting here is the index on this ETF actually expanded back in March. It went from, <clears throat> excuse me, like 30 holdings to 100. And my understanding is this was done because I uh, CLN and then it has an international counterpart. These were getting too big, right? And they needed to expand the investment universe uh, and be able to swim further up the cap spectrum be because... I think the argument would be made that maybe they wanted to address some liquidity risk and index concentration. So how do you square the underlying index provider, who in this case is S&P Dow Jones Indices and, and of course, iShares, the, uh, the issuer, how do you square them wanting to do this with what we were just discussing in terms of ETFs driving the prices of underlying stocks? Yeah, so... Yeah, no, it, it does. So look, it is absolutely the case that you cannot run a microcap strategy in a $10 billion fund, right? There are certain structures and certain target assets which you cannot own in a very, very large vehicle. 
ETFs are not the perfect solution for every investment. I know that sounds like a shocker. Somebody who has ETF in my title for the last 20 years. But like there are places where this doesn't work, right? If you want to take high conviction, uh, large bets in micro cap stocks that are headed for special situations and mergers and you're doing it on fundamental research, yeah, you probably shouldn't do that in an ETF. You should probably do that in an, in, you know, an LLC or a hedge fund structure, or you should roll it into a mutual fund where you can close it to new money, right? Those are real concerns. In the case of ICLN in particular, I mean, whether or not, you know, electric utilities and renewable energy and semis are going to perform, I mean, anybody got, anybody's guess is as good as mine. I think in general, I'm a believer in the clean energy and the carbon transfer world that we're headed to. So, you know, I, I suppose as good a guess as anybody's. Um, but to the point about why expand the index, they want this to be an ETF. They want it to be a tradable product. They want it to be a proxy for exposure to the clean energy space. And to do that, they need to have it liquid and investable. So we've seen this before, right? We had this problem with junior gold miners. Um, we will see it again. Uh, you know, when these small funds get bigger, inevitably their universes are going to have to expand. What do you think about these types of index changes from the perspective of an investor? Like, I wonder how many investors holding ICLN even know about this. And you, you oh, look not. at performance last year. <laughs> well, is, is there anything that should be done here? Or again, does it just get back to investor due diligence? What, what I was going to say is, I mean, you look at ICLN, it was up 140% last year, obviously vacuumed up assets, which led it to this point. But maybe some investors look at that and are expecting the same sort of pop uh, potential moving forward, but because it's swimming further up the cap spectrum, maybe that, uh, you know, the chances of that have diminished. Yeah, I, I mean, in this case, I don't think this is a radical change in what the fund is trying to do, uh, right? It's not like the Latin American real estate fund becoming MJ to buy weed, right? Like, so, I mean, this is it's still very much the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF. It's just a slightly different version of what that means. Um, I don't actually think it's going to have a very significant impact on the prospective performance. I mean, I guess we can take a look in a year. We can go run the whole closing portfolio before they did the index change and check. Uh, but I suspect we'll find that it'll be, you know, correlation 0.95. Okay, here's a, uh, a good question that I know is right up your alley. It comes from uh, at Michelle Arut, and they ask, why buy an ETF if it means you buy good stuff and garbage at the same time? And I, I've got to tell you, I feel like I've heard uh, Jim Cramer make that argument <laughs> several times. Uh, what, what say you on this one? Yeah, so this is just the indexing argument, right? Why buy the why buy the entire market when you know that half of it will underperform and half of it will overperform? And of course, the answer is, well, if you know exactly which half is which, go for it, right? <laughs> like, don't buy any, don't buy an index fund, right? And I think that that's the key answer here. If if you believe that either you or an asset manager that you have identified will be able to, in the future, select the winners and avoid the losers, then by all means, that is the person you should give your money to. So I'm never going to tell anybody that if they have done that work or believe they have that skill set, that they should not do it. Um, I know for myself uh, that I don't have that skill set. I, I, Christine Benz from Morningstar posted a great piece this morning where she talked about the stuff that's in her too hard bucket. Um, and, you know, like some things are easy, like I can drive to the store, I'll do that. Some things are too hard, flying an airplane, can't do that. That goes in the too hard bucket, not going to learn how to do it, pay somebody else. And Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have that system where it's like, Something's too complicated and they don't have the expertise. They put it in the too hard bucket and they don't do it. Well, I, I think it's individual stock selection for most investors is in the too hard bucket. Um, I think picking an active manager is in the too hard bucket. And so I just don't think it's actually worth the amount of energy people put into those activities, given the likelihood of your success. If you don't agree with me, then don't do that. That's great. It's free country. Couldn't have said it better myself. I think, and you know this, the, the challenge lies in the fact that indexing is often referred to as, as average, right? You're going to get average market returns if you index. Well, guess what? If you can get average market returns, you're going to be doing better than like 90%. Yeah. Well, it... And then you put cost into it. I mean, it's like people say about democracy. It's the worst system in the world, except for every other one we've tried. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, let, let's get to one more Twitter question, because selfishly, I want to get to the couple of questions that I have. Um, I'm going to go with this one. Here, here's another great Twitter handle. It's N1801099. <laughs> but look, they have a good question. They ask, 
how does an ETF provider prove that it actually possesses the underlying assets? So oh, shares, great. bonds, metals. Yeah, I like this one because it's a good ETF educational question, right? And one that yeah. I feel like always comes up with physical gold ETFs. I think I can do this one pretty quick too. So like here, here okay, put on my Dave professor hat. So every, you know, there are exceptions to every rule, but in general, every ETF is a 40 act registered mutual fund under the hood. That means it's its own company with its own independent board. And that board is the one that hires the investment advisor like BlackRock. They also hire the custodian, like a bank in New York or a Brown Brothers Harriman or somebody like that, and the fund accountant and the lawyer and every other thing that that entity that is the fund you own needs to do is overseen and paid for by the board. Obviously not paid with the board's money, paid with the company's money. So those are contractual relationships. So they hire a custodian, let's say it's BBH, um, to be the one that will actually hold the stocks and bonds that are in this fund. Now, BBH is a big, giant, regulated bank, right? It's an entity that has rules it has to live by or it gets shut down. And they have a contractual relationship with the fund that says, hey, here are the processes and procedures for how your brokerage transactions will be settled to our account over here at the custodian. And then we'll do the accounting to show you what you own every, you know, every day. And we'll calculate your net asset value and all that jazz. So these are arm's length contractual relationships with really the top 10 largest custody banks in the world, right? They, everybody uses the same custodians. Um, so if you don't believe that that is a viable chain of ownership, then you should not own stocks at all because your stocks are sitting with a custodian like that no matter where you buy it. So if you buy an ETF or you go to Charles Schwab, doesn't matter. Somewhere there is a custody bank that is actually the one that is recording that you own those shares. And if you're not comfortable with that, then you've got to put it literal paper certificates in a safe somewhere. And that's a terrible idea. Excellent description. And I'll just add, like with the physical gold ETFs, I mean, literally there are independent auditors that come in and ensure all the bars that are held by these ETFs actually exist. Oh, and that's true for all assets, right? That's true for the stocks in the custody account for IVV too, right? Those things are audited, they're regular reports. The, the, these things are checked and double checked and rechecked. All right, a few minutes left. Let's get to my uh, two questions. And this first one actually, it, it sort of ties into the last Twitter question we just answered. Um, so look, I, I was checking last week the new iShares Gold Trust Micro, so ticker IAUM, I call it mini IAU, uh, this launched in June, already has well over 300 million in assets. And I look at the entire physical gold ETF space right now, the Spider Gold Share, GLD, that has like $60 billion in assets. IAU, $30 billion in assets. And there are a number of ETFs in, in the space that are pretty healthy asset-wise. Um, my, my question is, why hasn't Vanguard launched a gold ETF? I would argue this is like a big hole in their ETF lineup, but I can't get anybody to, to offer an opinion on this. I'm just surprised they don't offer this. Uh, you know, to some extent, it's it would just be a step outside their expertise, right? They don't currently do, to my knowledge, they don't do current any current physical precious metals custody work anywhere in the business, right? So there's no mutual fund. I'm unaware of any SMAs or anything that they're doing this with. So it's a whole area that they don't have a team for. And one thing about Vanguard, boy, they don't like getting out over their skis, right? They know what they know how to do really well, and they stick to that. And when they wedge into something new, it tends to be a 10-year project. So I, you know, unless it's a space where I think they felt they could add real value, I can't imagine them building a capability to then feel comfortable enough to then launch product on it. Um, so I think there's four or five steps before they'd get there. And, and to some extent, why bother, right? I mean, 17 bips, it's not like they're going to shave a lot off that. Yeah, it's a good point. I guess my counter to that would be, number one, they do offer a commodity uh, mutual fund. So it's not like they won't traffic in the space. But I think more importantly, if you look at their two major competitors in iShares and State Street, obviously they both offer products. And I think there are a lot of advisors who view gold as a core holding in a portfolio. Now we can certainly have a, a huge debate on that, but I think if you talk to 100 advisors, I, I wouldn't be surprised if 50 of them uh, or somewhere in that neighborhood said, yeah, you know, we, we may own gold in our portfolio. And it just seems like a gap in their lineup just from core holdings, right? They have everything else covered in terms of broad asset classes, but gold's missing. 
And in the you know typical Vanguard fashion, they could offer this product, or they I'm sure they would offer this product at a very low price point, undercutting the market. It just seems like an easy way for them to gather assets and not have advisors go to competitors to get something that they think is a core holding. I, that's my argument. Yeah, in a nutshell. yeah, I, I I get it. I I don't. It, it strikes me as because it's so narrow and it doesn't get them anything but the ETF. I just don't see them investing in the capability around it. No, that's fair. All right. Before I let you go, speaking of Vanguard, they recently announced that they're acquiring a direct indexing platform, Just Invest. And I know direct indexing, that's a topic you and I have covered extensively in the past. We don't have to get down that path. I'm just curious, what did you make of Vanguard getting involved? I mean, this seems to me like a pretty big deal. I think it is a big deal. I think we're going to see effectively all of the major players with a solution here. Right, Schwab bought Motif. Um, they're going to be building something out of that. Um, so, you know, BlackRock's you know done their little deal. We've got this one coming up. So everybody's playing around at the edges of the space. Um, I think Just Invest is a particularly great fit for Vanguard. Like Vanguard is sort of really showing up in the ESG space and really sort of making how they approach ESG known in the last couple of years, right? They've actually got product in the space now. Um, Just Invest of the sort of more boutique direct indexing platforms is is very heavily focused on the personalized ESG component about this, um, really targeted for advisors. Um, so I, I feel like this is going to be a natural branding fit for Vanguard's advisor services business, how they choose to integrate this, what markets they choose to bring it to. To me, that's the most interesting part because um, I don't know what JustInvest's current minimums are, but you know they're an RAA, they have clients, I'm guessing you have to put in a decent amount of money. Um, the question to me is going to be, is this something that rolls down towards that sort of mass market level, people with a $100,000 account, um, or is this going to remain the, the province of only the multimillionaires? One interesting aspect, I tweeted this out, is that Vanguard doesn't offer an RA custodian platform. And Anymore, as, right? right yeah. yeah. And as I read the press release on this, it seemed like it, it was really targeted towards advisors. I thought that was interesting. I just wonder how they're going to reconcile that. There's been a lot of um, you know, scuttlebutt over the past couple of years that maybe Vanguard is developing an RA custody platform. And I wonder if that's something that could be rolled out in conjunction with a direct indexing offering as well. I guess we'll see. But yeah, I, I, I think you're right on the money. I think that's the interesting question is what does this mean for their offering to advisors? Dave, always fun chatting. I think we could easily do this for, uh, for hours, but we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for joining me. Oh, anytime, Nate. Have a great day. That was ETF Trends. Dave Nodig. Looking to invest in the forefront of change impacting our lives? Take a look at biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Why? Because biotechnology companies recently developed effective vaccines for COVID-19, and semiconductor firms created computer chips that are used across today's growing industries. Close to 20 years ago, NASDAQ developed two indexes to help investors track biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Learn more at Invesco.com IBBQ or Invesco.com SOXQ. IBBQ and SOXQ are NASDAQ listed. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-983-0903 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I am now joined by Ross Gerber, president and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management, who oversees some $2 billion in client assets. And earlier this month, Advisor Shares launched the Gerber Kawasaki ETF, ticker symbol GK, which of course is managed by Ross. Gerber Kawasaki is the sub-advisor on this ETF. And Ross is now on the line with me from Santa Monica, California. Ross, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Glad well, to be here. Well, first, uh, congratulations on the launch of this ETF. I actually saw that you rang the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange uh, recently to celebrate this. I'm just curious, how did that go? H had you ever rang the bell before? Uh, that, it was actually an amazing experience. I, I've never done it before. I, I've been on the floor of the exchange many times in the past, whether for uh, to learn or through television spots I did on the floor. And so I always kind of hoped one day I would do that. It, it wasn't really my goal to go public like with my company. 
So it wasn't, I didn't know if that would ever happen. So the fact we decided to launch an ETF and got to ring the bell was sort of a, a semi dream come true. And it was an amazing experience. So uh, I'm really uh, happy we were able to do that. All right. So look, um, obviously your firm, Gerber Kawasaki, you're a wealth manager. My understanding is that you work with quite a wide variety of clients. Uh, you're managing $2 billion in assets. From my perspective, right. things appear to be going really well. So let's start with yeah. why you launched this ETF. How did this fit into your business model? Well, first of all, you know, it says wealth management, but really we have two programs, one of which is helping people build their wealth. And we work with a lot of young people, and that's been kind of the key to our success is we don't have minimums at our firm. And we have a program, whether you have $50 million or whether you have 50000 or whether you have $50, we have a way for you to get invested with us. And, and that's a, an important part of our growth and success is democratizing financial advice for people. Um, the ETF concept was really born out of the idea that so many people today maybe don't want to actually use our financial planning services and, and they sort of do it themselves on the various platforms, the biggest being, let's say, Schwab and TG Ameritrade. But now with all the online platforms like Robinhood and and uh, Webull and Square and, and a million of them really globally, we wanted to give investors the opportunity to invest with us no matter where they are and even if they were doing it themselves. And the ETF presented an incredible structure for us to do this in because it has enormous tax advantages for active traders. I'm curious, what about the social media element here? So I saw some comments you made to CityWire where you mentioned how, look, you do have a ton of engagement on platforms like Twitter, but as you were just alluding to, perhaps people aren't necessarily looking for the full services offered by your RIA, and so an ETF can, can absolutely bridge the gap here. Um, do, do you want to just expand on that a little bit more in terms of this social media element? Yeah, well, we're kind of the first firm that really embraced social media, and this started when Facebook was launched, and, you know, it was about 20, it was 2008, <clears throat> when we first got in trouble for posting on Facebook by our compliance department, and we gained a lot of followers quickly. And when I launched Gerber Kawasaki in 2010 with my partner, the basic concept was how do we leverage social media and the internet and online advertising to build a bigger firm without the traditional bricks and mortar branch style and without the traditional advertising that a lot of firms do. And we were able to successfully do this throughout our our you know career, which was really hard because getting people to actually work with a financial advisor through social media had never really been done successfully, and it wasn't easy. Um, but over time, we honed our message and really was able to get out what we do and how we do it to people, and it's uh, you know worked very well. Now I have you know probably 160 odd thousand followers on Twitter, which is crazy in my mind that so many people would follow a financial person who basically talks about stocks all day. But stock trading has become incredibly popular again, like in the 90s. And that was also the impetus. So there was really two things. One, stock trading is cool again. You know, it's taken 25 years, but we're back to, you know, when I walk down the street and, and, and I'm talking about stocks, actually people care. You know, it used to be sort of like, oh, this guy's in the most boring job ever. So, so that's increased interest. So we wanted to have an ability for people to, take advantage of that on top of the fact that with the biden administration taking power and where the difficult situation in america and the rest of the world is still facing with coronavirus presented a good backdrop to make investments for the next decade based off basically our thematic viewpoint of the world so we think the next five years looks very very good uh, for for America in particular, and we wanted to take advantage of that growth and give people a vehicle to take advantage of it. On the uh, social media, do you think we'll see uh, more of this where social influencers or technical experts, whatever you want to call them, um, these types of people getting involved in ETFs? I mean, we saw that uh, earlier this year with Barstool's Dave Portnoy, uh, Joe right. Pompliano, Matthew Ball, obviously your ETF. Do you expect to see more of this? Do you think this is a sort of a trend? Well, there's, there's two types of people. There's people like me who are actually real investment people who are launching an investment product. And then there's marketers like Joe and, and, and Dave who actually know very little about investing and are marketing investment products for other companies. And so there's a difference here. 
So I do think that the celebrity endorsement side of our business will continue to grow, especially with the new SEC uh, uh, guidance on uh, testimonials. Um, but I also think the power of these social followings is what's really driving it because traditional advertising doesn't work anymore, really. And so the leverage of social is, is huge, and, and we've seen that. But I do think for actual people to launch an ETF, and I can vouch for this, I've spent three months dealing with compliance, legal, and regulatory, and it's a nightmare. So the fact we were able to do this was only because we have a perfect track record working with clients and no complaints and lawsuits and, and a clean record with the SEC and a long-term track record. I mean, you have to really be, you know, have your ducks in a row to do this. Uh, it was much harder than I thought, actually. On that note, in terms of getting the ETF uh, off the ground, how did you connect with advisor shares? Like, how did you decide on working with them? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting story because I actually do work with Roundhill Securities and I'm close with them and we're close also with Global X and ARC, which are also thematic investment firms. And, you know, I actually, they approached me uh, about doing it more than I approached them. But the reason I wanted to work with them once the idea was put in my head was, first of all, the, the president and CEO of the company, Noah, uh, Noah Hamm, is just a great guy and their team was really complimentary to the team I have and their expertise is obviously very different than mine. The structure worked being a portfolio manager sub advisor for them works a lot better than me starting an ETF company. And most importantly, they had proven to me that my outspoken views, this was my biggest concern, wouldn't bother them. See, I say I talk about politics, I talk about, you know, whatever I feel like talking about on the internet and sometimes you know, especially politics, people get tense because, you know, I'm an anti-racist, uh, you know, I'm an anti-Trumper, and I'm, I'm vocal about these things despite the backlash I get. And so, you know, I wanted to work with somebody that understood that I stand for more than just making money. A lot of our investments are politically driven, whether it's for climate change. We very much believe oil companies and auto, the auto industry is destroying the environment. And we're very vocal about that. So it, I, I, I'm not the kind of guy to partner with if you're squeamish about controversy. So <laughs> no, it was like, you know, hey, man, I love this stuff. And we run the biggest weed ETF in the country. And I was like, or one of, and I was like, the fact that this guy's bet his career on a weed ETF and he's willing <laughs> to deal with me, it sounded like a match made in heaven. And, and so far, so good. You know, we, we really have a great relationship so far. All right. So before we get to the details of the ETF itself, how do you like to describe your firm's overall investment approach or philosophy? So if, if I became a client tomorrow and let's just say I'm a fairly typical client of your firm, what would I expect my portfolio to look like just at a high level? Well, it's basically the same. So that's that was really the idea is giving, you know, whether you're a client or just buying an ETF, you basically have the same portfolio. The difference is the customization to your risk tolerance and your preferences, which every client has. So how much bonds we add in a portfolio, um, maybe overweight certain sectors that we typically are invested in. But our thematic approach is really born out of my almost three decades of experience as an investor, where when I started investing, you know, I noticed certain themes in the 90s, like the rise of the PC and such, and, and we invested as such then, and it was an incredibly profitable time. And then the 2000s, we invested in the rise of mobility, cell phones at the time, and social media. And then in the last 10 years, we've really benefited pr from the growth of technology um, and as well as other areas like EVs and clean energy. So, you know, now as we look over the next decade, and, and really the, the concept of our ETF and investment management style is what, is what are the transformative things that are happening over the next decade? thinking long-term, and we want to invest as such. And we currently have nine major themes that we're investing in. And so by buying my ETF, what happens is, is you're getting a diversified growth portfolio that's, uh, you know, sort of like you don't have to think about like, oh, I want to have this weighting this and this weighting and that, because we're already doing that for you. So when you invest in ARC or Global X, which are great firms that we have a lot of money invested in, you have to actively manage your actual allocations to the different sectors. When many of these sectors come in and out, as we've seen with like ARC, K, 
where, you know, it's done incredibly well. Last year, this year, it's underperforming by a large amount. Um, and that's because it's only in one sector. So by using my ETF, you smooth out the ups and downs of the different sector allocations, but ultimately, ideally, get a higher rate of return. Yeah, and a couple of things I'll add here uh, to the ETF, ticker GK. This does allocate across the market cap spectrum, so it can hold large, mid, and small cap approximately 45 holdings. And then those themes that you were mentioning, Ross, uh, this from the press release, pets living as humans, video games Mm -hmm. as new social media, areas that used to be illegal, as you were alluding to, cannabis and and online gambling, climate change, so clean energy and transportation, top brands consumers love, real estate disruption, uh, innovation in healthcare and biotechnology, uh, technology, artificial intelligence, and then streaming, uh, sports, entertainment, um, what, one question I have is, if I look at the top holdings right now in the CTF, two are actually ETFs themselves. So there's the Global right. X Lithium and Battery Tech ETF, ticker LIT, and then the Advisor Shares Pure U.S. Cannabis ETF, ticker MSOS. What is the decision-making here on using an ETF versus targeting some you know, individual stocks in those areas? Well, it, it was the fact that I couldn't do that is why we're using the ETFs. So because I wanted very specific exposure in these sectors, and in these cases, these are foreign stocks that make it prohibitive for me to invest in as an ETF, um, because we're basically a domestic ETF, and many of them you can't even trade like some of the South Korean stocks in LIT that we wanted exposure to. So this is, you know, the MSOS gives us exposure to Canadian, basically small cap MSOs here in the United States, which are multi-state operators, which are the people who are really selling weed in the United States. So U.S.-based cannabis companies can't list in the U.S., and therefore my ETF can't buy them individually. And so we bought the ETF to get that exposure because that was really the only way. And the same holds true with the LIT ETF, which gives us the absolute perfect exposure for battery technology and, and the commodities around it. But many of these companies are sort of Chinese, South Korean, Japanese. Some are pretty obscure companies. They don't trade in the U.S. And so we wanted to get those exposures, and this was the only way. And that's why they're there, um, and that's why I think it makes our overall portfolio a little bit more diversified and a little bit more unique because we do have 10% of the portfolio essentially in this diversified basket of foreign growth companies in cannabis and and uh, battery technology. Okay, you know I have to ask you about your third largest holding, Tesla, because I've seen you yeah. chop it up quite a bit on Twitter over this company. So what, what do you like here? Because I would say, at least from my perspective, there may not be a more polarizing company and a more polarizing CEO than Tesla and Elon Musk right now. It just seems like investors either love or hate them. Just in a nutshell, why do you fall in the camp of the former? Well, I've been an investor in Tesla for the last eight years. It's It's been the most profitable investment, one of the most profitable investments of my career. And for the size of the investment we had, it was in dollar value, the biggest investment gain we've ever made. So by all means, I have a lot of love for Tesla for for good reason. Um, That being said, where Tesla is today is they've never been in a more dominant position than they are today um, compared to in the past where they were really struggling just to get the car out and in scale, which they've now succeeded at doing. They've become one of the biggest companies in the world. And the future for Tesla is amazingly bright because they essentially have no competitions that's that successfully scaled EV production. They, they really have monopolized battery production and cell design, which is a game changer. They're at the forefront of AI and autonomy, which is like full self-driving is about to just be the most incredible thing we've seen. And everybody thinks it's a long way off. It's not. And, and then we're not even discussing solar and battery storage, which is just in huge demand and a must need, but their dominance in cell technology and AI, um, it's just, I've never seen a company so far ahead of the curve in technology and it's a must own for investors. So it's, it's the top stock holding in our, our fund. And, and I think Tesla's going to have a really bright future. Why do you think they're so polarizing then? You know, out, out on Twitter, you have these Tesla oh, shores. I mean, are these people who have missed the run-up that are just, uh, you know, sort of bitter about it? Or why, why are they so polarizing? Or why is the company so polarizing? So, so like guys like Elon Musk, 
are very rare because they kind of bear it all every day on Twitter. And, you know, Elon is, is crazier than me, that's for sure. And, and, you know, so when you deal with people who are willing to put up memes, attack lawyers, you know, do all the things that CEOs sort of are fearful of, it, it just creates a polarization among the people, especially, you know, a lot of people who are more traditional minded who are like, why would he say this? Why is he doing that? You know, he's dating some crazy music woman. He names his kid X, you know. So these things to modern youth culture are super cool. But to traditional Wall Street, it's like, oh, he's this crazy weirdo, you know. So I think and it's kind of the way I am too. We put a lot out of there on Twitter about how we think and feel and not everybody agrees with us and that's okay, but there's just a certain amount of haters out there and it can be for any reason. And, and I'm sure there's, you have probably a few haters too, for no reason. <laughs> you know, like If you put your stuff out there and you're really trying, you get a lot of positive and there's a certain amount of negative that comes with it. And if you focus on the negative, it's, it, it sucks. Um, but if you focus on the positive that Elon is one of the most followed people in the world and Tesla spends not a dollar in advertising, this is unbelievable for a car company selling, let's say, a million units over the next 12 months that they literally spent nothing on advertising. So think about that value when Ford is going to spend, you know, I don't know, what do they spend, a billion dollars on advertising? You know, it's crazy. So, or more. So, you know, with the Super Bowl, I was just reading the Super Bowl ads are going for $6 million and it's 85% sold out, and he can just tweet and get more engagement than a Super Bowl ad. You know, love it or hate it, it works. All right, uh, Ross, just a few minutes left here. One thing I, I did want to ask you, um, it's interesting to me to see an ETF where if I look at the prospectus on GK, you were outright saying that one part of the process for selecting securities is your own qualitative analysis of a company. And of course, mm -hmm. we, we've been in this world where passive investing has ruled everything, right? And investors are just shoving money into index funds. And yep. I, I'm sure you've seen all the data out there on how traditional yep. active management, right? It's underperformed as a whole. If you look at SPIVA scorecards or whatever, why do you think you can buck the trend here in terms of performance? Well, there's two, two things. One, you know, past performance is not indicative of future results, but my past performance has been phenomenal. So, you know, that's just that. And my clients will obviously happy to tell you how happy they are. Um, we've had a, a really great run, especially over the last five years. Um, so that was sort of what has prompted the tremendous inflows into our firm as well, because we work on a referral basis. Like we actually don't spend much money on advertising either anymore. And so it's, it's really, you know, an awesome experience. Secondly, I say the same thing to everybody. When I was in high school, only a very few people were going to get into an Ivy League college. And so many, many people apply and most don't get in. I think they take less than 5% of the applications and somebody gets in. And so, yes, the vast majority of people aren't going to trail the index, but it doesn't mean that everybody trails the index. It just means the majority doesn't trail the index. But it, depending on the year, it can be anywhere from 20 to 40% of active managers beat the index. You just have to be with those managers just the same, most basketball teams suck, and the few that are really good, you want to stick with. So maybe it wasn't a great year for the Lakers this year, but I wouldn't bet against them next year. So I think the same holds through that we have a time-tested process that I've done for almost 30 years now, my entire life, and I'm going to continue to apply the same things over the next decade. I'm 50 right now, so this is the, sort of the prime of my experience and as well as my abilities, I think. And so I wanted to give it a shot. You know, the truth is I can't promise that I'm going to beat the markets. I'm going to try really hard. Um, I hope to do that. And we'll see in 10 years, you know. <laughs> uh, but I have for a long time. And, and I do think if you look at the actual statistics behind the fund and the actual holdings and the earnings growth, there is a methodology behind beating the markets, which is basically having higher earnings growth for the right valuation than the market. And so you know, we think we can do it and we'll see, you know. And then in terms of portfolio application, just to be clear, do you do you view GK as like a, a larger core holding in a portfolio or is it more of a satellite position? 
No, exactly that. It's a core holding because we saw so many people coming into the firm with just a bunch of satellite positions. You know, like we see a lot of people coming in with, let's say, they own some, you know, Bitcoin, they own some, uh, you know, some Tesla, they own maybe a few shares of AMC and some ARC. And I said, you know, that's not a portfolio. I get your speculation, but you need a core growth fund. And that was really the idea with the ETF was to be a complement to your ARC holdings, your Global X holdings, your MEM stocks, whatever. But put this in your IRA. You know, this is a growth fund. It's a core growth fund. You can buy your other things. I know you're a do-it-yourselfer. That's fine. But have something that's solid and diversified. And that was really the idea is to be sort of the new growth fund of America, where these are the new growth opportunities that we see over the next decade. And and if investors want to follow up by their own customizations, that's kind of what we do within our firm with our clients anyway. So, um, so that's the idea. It's a core growth fund. And ideally, we'll get young people focused on the long term and investing in these great themes. And I meant to ask you this earlier. Is it possible that you could use a CTF for existing clients of Gerber Kawasaki? Like, could you hold this for your advisory client portfolios? Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, you know, we're working on the process right now to have it even available to our clients, which it isn't currently. Um, so for us, it's an efficiency in two elements. One is the tax advantage of ETFs. We generated over $20 million in taxes on our Tesla gains last year for our clients. And it's real, real frustrating when they have to withdraw lots of money to pay taxes, even though they've made a lot of money. And with the ETF structure, we're able to transfer shares for shares instead of selling those shares. And it allows us to defer taxes for clients. And so this is a huge advantage for our clients. If they have new money, they can buy the same portfolio they have now, but it's essentially like an IRA. It's tax deferred versus their current situation where everything I do is tax, taxable with gains. So that's one huge advantage. And the second is efficiency in smaller accounts. Because we manage a lot of small accounts, they don't always get the diversification that we want to have. So we use a lot of mutual fund companies and other products as well that also have a cost to our clients. So we were like, our clients really want our money management, not you know us farming it out because their accounts are too small. So now it gives us the ability to offer you know, if you've got a $3,000 account with us, we can just get you in these 40 stocks because normally I just can't buy you 40 stocks with a $3,000 account. So there's this efficiency uh, that is huge for our clients, especially if they have multiple accounts, which many people have. So so there's a lot of advantages to our clients. It's not something we're just going to, you know, stuff down people's throats because our clients already have this in a way, you know, it's just customized to them. Well, Ross, with that, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, congratulations on the launch. I certainly wish you the, the best of luck. Really appreciate uh, the discussion this week. Really interesting hearing about the, this ETF. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. That was Ross Gerber, president and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank our sponsors, NASDAQ and Invesco. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by CFRA's Todd Rosenbluth. We're going to go around the horn on several recent ETF stories. Always fun when Todd's on the podcast. And then U.S. Global's Frank Holmes will offer the latest on the global airline industry and the U.S. Global Jets ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.